great to have everyone here tonight. It's the closing lesson that we're have having for this quarter. Brother Mike Gifford will be teaching next uh, Wednesday night and continuing into that second quarter here. It's been a great privilege for me and a great opportunity that I appreciate so very, very much. I want, I want to set the stage for what we're going to say by simply reminding you of some things from the Old Testament. Remember how specific God was when he gave Moses the directions the instructions for building that tabernacle? If we think of it for a few moments, even down to the most minute detail he outlined for Moses, even for the color of the threads that were going to be in the curtains in that tabernacle. Not only that, but he very specifically commanded what the chief priest was going to do, how he was going to serve, how he was going to offer sacrifices, how the ones of, uh, of the tribe of Levi were going to assist him, and specifically exactly what they were expected to do. We find some things uh, when they did not do what they were expected to do. And as a result, they gave up their lives as a result. I want you to think about that clearly. That's setting the pattern for how God expects us to live. I think again of Noah. God gave Noah a commandment to build an ark. Noah had never seen an ark before. He had never seen a boat. They didn't have them then. But God gave the specific instructions as to the kind of wood that was to go in it, the length of that, that ark, the height of that ark, the rooms that were built in it, how many windows it would have, how many doors it would have. God gave all of those instructions. And when you read that story, you find that Noah built it according to the instructions God gave. You go back to Moses and the ta tabernacle when it was first constructed, you find that it was built according to God's instructions. Now think about something for a moment. As we go through the pages of time, and we come to the point when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman and born under the law. All of this that has been taking place we're not going to get into detail about it, but all of this that's been taking place was taking place to prepare for the coming of Christ, to prepare for the kingdom that He was going to establish, to prepare for the fact of how people would have to really do what God's commanding them to do. He set the pattern for us as far as the church of our Lord's concerned, and that's been our subject matter throughout this quarter. He, did, he, he, he made, made it necessary for us to realize what God expected of us. He did that through the establishment of the church, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at that time, 
how God had planned for the church to be not only established, but how it to us to operate in times after the establishment of it. When we read the New Testament today, we read it to determine how God expects us to live and how God expects us to worship Him. How can we ever know? If we don't go to the New Testament and find, we're not building a, a, a tabernacle, we're not building an ark. We're Christian people who compose the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to see exactly how we're going to understand that, how we're going to live for that. And I'm stressing that because of one simple fact. We're living in times today in which our culture has had very grave influence upon us, upon our people round about us. We see all kinds of religious organizations cropping up everywhere. I won't name them, but you know as well as I do as you drive down the road. You see some with strange names you never heard of before. Is that what God wanted? Are they following the instructions of that New Testament and the church that Jesus established? It's so easy today for individuals seemingly to want to find some way to enjoy the worship, find some way to be entertained, to go home thinking that uh, I, I, I'm doing pretty good. Is that what God wants of us? You see, under the pressure of the different cultural norms in the present, the church should not abandon all the scriptural standards, all the scriptural commands for both male and female. We're going to be talking about that. Both reactions are wrong, whether it's for male or female, and we're following the cultural standards of our, our time. Cultural practices or society uh, preferences should not lead the church and should not be whether uh, you and I are going to become part of it or not. You see, we're, we, we, we see some people who place undue restrictions all through the area of the church. But I want to talk about just one today. Not that uh, we're placing undue restrictions. Perhaps the proper way to deal with this is to remind us of some early statements of women and their prominent activities of the New Testament church. These include, first of all, prophesying. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter began quoting from Joel the prophet. And in verses 17 and 18, in that quotation, he, he has Joel saying, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants, and on my maid servants, 
I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. That's quoted again in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 5. Paul mentions the fact that a, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head and for that one and the same as if her head had been shaved. Now what's he talking about? What's he saying there that, that is absolutely necessary for us to understand? We're going to talk about that in a little while. Also along with that prophesying was teaching. Acts chapter 18 and verse 26 tells us about a beautiful story of, uh, of Aquila and Priscilla. When they had come to Antioch and found there a, 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 a man who was preaching, and they were asking him, they knew that he talked about baptism, but he didn't know the full story of, of how it came. They, he only knew the preach, preaching of John the Baptist. And so they took him aside that day and explained him. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now we aren't told what part Priscilla had, to play, had played in that. Whatever it was, it was important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 5, uh, we read a moment ago, and Titus chapter 2, verse 3 through 5, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be disobedient, to, to be discreet, not disobedient, to be discreet and chaste and homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. What are you saying? Here are some women who are actually being taught what to do. Priscilla assisted her husband in some way. I don't know what it was. Maybe they took uh, uh, the one they were teaching to their home. I, I don't know. We're not told. She gave great help. And also... In, Act, in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, Paul gives instructions to older women. And think about what he said now. Think about what he, he, they were to do. And then thirdly, they were also to work at the, uh, in advancing the gospel. The details of this work are not specified for us in the Bible, but the terminology is the same as is used for men who were co-workers of the apostles. Philippians 4 and verse 3. And I hope you have your Bibles with you so you can follow some of these scriptures. And we're going to be especially wanting you to follow some scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in a few moments. Philippians 4 and verse 3 says, I urge you also, true companion, help these women, Yodia and Syntyche, who labored with me in the gospel, and Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. They labored with me in the gospel. Think about that. Romans 16 and verse 7. Greed and Adrochus and Junia, my countrymen who were prominent among the apostles. 
That's most likely a husband and wife missionary team. The phrase does not mean well known by the apostles, but notable among the apostles. And Junia is most certainly a feminine name. Apostles is used in the sense of missionaries. Apostle is someone who's sent out, as missionaries are. And then fourthly, women were also working on behalf of the church. Again, in unspecified ways. Romans chapter 16 and verse 6 says, Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. And again in 16 and verse 12, Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenia and Tryposa. We don't know what they did. They were workers in, in, in service of the Lord. And then too, we find women mentioned in various serving capacities that are specified. During Jesus' ministry, women provided financial support for Him and, and for the disciples or apostles at that. Luke 8, verses 1 through 3 refers to women who provided for them out of their resources. Now, I don't know how they did it. I don't know what kind of resources they had. But I can think of uh, the 12 men following Jesus along with some others, disciples that were there. Where did they eat? How did they have a living? Somebody provided it for him. And here are some ladies who did. And uh, Acts chapter 9 and verse 36 refers to Dorcas. You remember the story who was devoted to good works and acts of charity, including the making of clothing for other women, especially widows. Romans 16, 1 and 2 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon, some translations say. I don't know what yours says. It's the same word that's translated deacon. It's servant. New King James refers to it as a servant of the church at Sincia. For she's been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. I don't know. Phoebe's benefactions may have included the providing of her home as a space for hospitality for missionaries, a place maybe for the meeting of the church. Didn't have the church buildings that we have today. They wouldn't be able to meet most likely in governmental buildings or places of that nature. And so meeting in homes was probably what was done. Such as explicitly stated about Lydia, if you remember, in Acts chapter 16, when she and her household were, were baptized, she urged us, Paul says, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And after leaving prison, Paul and Silas went to Lydia's home. And when they had been seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. Now more explicitly, Church-related activities are in addition to passages about Christian women's activities in the home and in the family. I think we must confess that churches have not always utilized women as fully as these passages indicate that they were involved in that first century in the apostolic days. In reflecting cultural norms of the past, the church through history has sometimes not only failed to put 
when to work to work, when to, uh, fail to put to work fully, but has even allowed their repression, and that should never be under the pressure pressure of of cultural norms, cultural changes that we're seeing in this present time. I'm stressing to you tonight that the church should never abandon the standards concerning male and female roles that we read about in the New Testament. You see, when we understand cultural practices and societal preferences, both things are wrong when we look at it and compared to what God has commanded us or ordered us to do. We are not, it's either placing undue restrictions on women's work or, or respecting, not respecting biblical limitations. We need to respect what God has said. The cultural setting will certainly influence the extent to which women are involved and in ways in which that involvement is, is expressed. But in every cultural setting, the church will respect the dignity of women as one made in the image of God and divinely appointed leadership of men in the home and in the church. One must not be, it must not defend the suppression of women in order to maintain the biblical standard, the biblical teaching about leadership. Leadership in the home and in the church. You notice the, lead, the title we had in the very first uh, frame that you saw was leadership in the church. We're talking about it in just one sense here, just one angle of it. And that happens to be the women's role in the assembly. Our subject for consideration here is not these of logical concerns of male-female relationships or even women's general involvement in the life of the church. Our other, our subject is the assembly. What specifically are women's roles in the assembly of the church? Well, first of all, it's doing what Christians do. Some things, some, some do things commanded of each Christian. All of us have commands of God. These would include singing. I hope all of us do that. I'm glad it doesn't, and you've heard me say it before, I'm glad the Bible doesn't tell me you've got to have a certain type of voice or something of that nature, because I couldn't sing if that would be the case. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20 says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we can all do. We can all sing. We can all make known the fact of the glory of God and, the, 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 and give thanks to Him through, that, through, through the songs that we sing. These instructions apply to everyone. Men are not the only ones who are to avoid drunkenness. And at all times, so including times of the assembly as well as other times, women should join in congregational amen accompanying prayer. 
1 Corinthians 14 and verse 16. Giving too is commanded to each Christian. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 says, On the first day of the week, let each of you put aside and save whatever extra you learn so that collections need not be taken when I come. Paul was planning a visit. He was planning for them to contribute funds to the poor saints in Judea. And Paul was going to take it back to them. But it was only logical, only right, that they should prepare ahead of time. And that's what he's asking them. Now, I hope you have your Bibles there. Uh, you know, they, women can participate in those group uh, activities, no question about that. What the whole congregation does together includes women. Individual activities must be evaluated separately, but what leadership roles in the assembly? What about that? Leadership roles... Now, I want to turn to that now. And as we examine, examine two passages that place limitations on women's activities in the assembly. I hope you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to be dealing with verse 33 through verse 40. These instructions to women are a part of a series of regulations concerning speaking in the assembly. Paul regulates the speech in turn, of, in turn of those who spoke in tongues first, 1 Corinthians 14, 27, and 28. And then he regulated the term of the prophets when they spoke. In Paul's regulations in verses 29 through 33 with women and 33 through 36, Paul's regulations follow the form, same form in all three cases. He names a group, states the rule about speech, gives an example in conditional form, and justifies what has been said. Let me, let me illustrate to you. I want you to read with me from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 27 and 28. If anyone speaks in a tongue... Let there be two or three at the most. I wonder why only two or three. If you have a lot of speakers, you lose a lot of the, the, the sense of understanding of what's going on. Well, at two or three at the most, and each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let them be silent in the church and speak to themselves and to God. Now, if they were speaking in a tongue, which is a foreign language, a language that, that, that some people could understand, but he's talking about a language that the congregation would not understand. You don't get up and do that just to demonstrate the fact that you have that gift of spirit. Unless somebody is interpreting that speech to the people there in the language they can understand. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and verse 29 through 33, he says, But let two, or, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, that all may be encouraged, 
and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God's not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Now whatever, whatever rule that Paul is giving at this time concerning the prophets, he gives in all the churches of the saints. This is not just for Corinth. This is not just something that he's trying to deal with some kind of cultural system that's there in, in that city. Not that at all. And then notice again uh, the 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 through 36. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. What's the law? The law of the Old Testament. Even the Old Testament said that. So he's saying this is going back from the very beginning. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it's shameful for women to speak in the church. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it to you only that it reached? Now, think about this for a moment. Not only is he talking about women being silent in the, in the assembly. They're not to preach. They're not to lead prayers. They're to be silent. They're not leaders there. But if they're, if they're not permitted to speak, if there's anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home. For it's shameful for a woman to speak. As you see, as we think about this, things ought to be done decently and in order. Let's read on. I want to read on from verse 36. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that, things which, that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. What does this mean? These are the commandments of the Lord. Not cultural, not what society wants or society is playing with. It's not that at all. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in th tongues, but let all things be done decently and in order. When we're talking about our worship, the speaking and being silent in the instructions to women are defined by their usage here. Some have tried to find a special meaning for the word speak in verse 34. For instance, it's association with tongue and uh, tongue speaking in, in this chapter, but the word is the ordinary word in the Greek for any kind of speaking or other vocal sounds. Paul in verse 19 and the prophets, verse 3 and 29, enter, enters in the chapter also, used it for intelligible speech intelligible speech. Similarly, silence enjoined on women is the same silence enjoined on tongue speakers 
and prophets under the circumstances mentioned by Paul in this context. Being silent is the cessation or absence of speech. Without an indication otherwise, the, the word for speaking and being silent should have the same meaning as elsewhere in this context. At the minimum, the speaking would mean the same as elsewhere. We can understand that. Be, the, the, when we're talking about such as, as is being done by the prophets or bringing the word of the Lord to, to the assembly and those, from those kinds of speech, in contemporary terms, that would exclude women from preaching, from bringing the word of God, from leading prayers, that is, speaking to God in the assembly. Now, one might object to these, these uh, instructions. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Concern spiritual gifts so they're not applicable today. Well, that much is true. The spiritual gifts that were given by the laying on of the apostles' hands, by the Holy Spirit dwelling in them and giving them certain talents, certain abilities that they did not have previously. Some of them were speaking in other languages. Some of them were prophesying or, or preaching. Some of them were uh, doing great healing and, and works of that kind of nature. But all of them was a special gift of the Holy Spirit, which was temporary. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, those things are going to disappear when that which is perfect has come. And we read in James chapter 1 of the perfect law of liberty. So when that perfect law of liberty has come, then we know that they, those special gifts of the Holy Spirit no longer will work. The women addressed included those with the gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues, for the gifts of the Spirit were not gender-specific. We find several women who received certain special gifts of the Holy Spirit. Paul's principles are not limited to women with such gifts. If Paul forbade inspired speech by women, how much more would he forbid uninspired speech? Moreover, Paul gives directions according to principles that are not dependent on special circumstances. Some have argued that the problem in Corinth was not women prophesying, but women prophets embarrassing their husbands by publicly questioning, examining, weighing, or discerning their prophetic speech in the assembly. The stress... If you notice there, in verse 35, the stress is on, they can ask their own husbands at home. Very specific about who they can ask and where they can ask it. They're not going to interrupt their husband if he's a prophet and speaking publicly in that, in that service, in that assembly. They're not going to interrupt him by asking a question at that time. They'll wait till they get home. There may be some validity to, the, to this as regards one of the specific circumstances that called forth by Paul's regulations, but it's difficult to understand how one questioning the prophetic utterance of her husband would assert more authority over him than delivering 
her own prophetic message. To restrict Paul's prohibition of women speaking to this circumstances ignores this structure of, the, uh, of that passage. In the case of tongue speakers and prophets, Paul regulates their speech and does not prohibit it altogether. He seeks to control abuses by limiting the number of tongue speakers, making them take turns, and requiring the presence of an interpreter if need be. Prophets are too limited in number and are to speak in turns, yielding to someone else who has a revelation. Paul instructs tongue, tongue speakers when they speak one at a time and when they should keep silent. Revelation made to somebody else, maybe. However, the prohibition on women speaking is stated absolutely. Provision is made by their silence, not their speaking. If Paul only wanted, wanted to regulate abuses, he could have done so by stating the circumstances under which women were to speak and under the circumstances under which women were to speak and the circumstances under which they were not. That's what, what he did in tongue speakers and prophets. The example stated in the conditional clause, verse 35, if you notice that, and if they want to learn, a conditional phrase, isn't it? Women, if they want to learn, let them ask their own husbands at home. You see, instead of being the type of speech that was creating a problem and so being forbidden would be the pattern of other conditional clauses in regard to tongue speakers and prophets. A special circumstance in this case extended the prohibition to seemingly be the most innocent and justifiable kind of speaking, especially in view of Paul's own emphasis in the chapter on edification. The women might have argued that if you want us to be instructed, we ought to be able to ask questions so that we learn what is meant. Paul's response, if they do indeed want to learn, they have another avenue of doing so. The impersonal statement that he makes when he says it's not permitted for them to speak, verse 34, indicates a general principle or a law, not the statement Paul's personal opinion or preference, but contrast the word but, stated in the imperative but they should be subordinate or submissive or they are to subject themselves. Talking about wives to their husbands. You see, that shows that speaking would uh, indicate a lack of submission and so suggest that when we understand that, uh, that the women are to be subjected, not, not stated. Where husbands are intended, this is said, Ephesians 6, verse 22, or 5, verse 22, Colossians 3, verse 18. This absence of an of a object generalizes the statement and argues against the limitation to husbands in this context. So does the absence of the article with women. Paul seems to be generalizing the prohibition. Paul does not say that it's shameful to speak in a disorderly or disrespectful manner and if, if that were to happen but that it is shameful for a woman to speak in church.
Now I want you to notice with me in the last 10 minutes or so here that we've got four arguments. The first is the practice of the churches. Notice it in verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Uh, as you think about that for a moment, here's the strength of Paul's rebuke. Did the word of God originate with you? Remember him doing that in verse 29? As we think about it, that was not what Paul was trying to say. The church at Corinth needed to follow the practices that Paul is suggesting and that Paul has instituted in other churches because he says, as is in all the churches of Christ, our churches of the saints. You see, the lesson here is that churches in our own time who want to do their own thing may need to heed what's said here. Secondly, there's God's law at creation. Notice that in verse 34. Let your women keep silent churches. They're not permitted to speak. But let's go back that just a little ways to verse 11, uh, chapter 11. And there I want you to see what he's saying concerning everything there. I want you to understand what he's talking about. He, he tells us in verse 34 of, of the 14th chapter that, that, that uh, it's God's law from creation. Women, he says, should be subordinate as the law also says. This has been a, there's been a considerable question about what Paul means here since there's no exact law in the Old Testament corresponding to this, this context. Nevertheless, law without some other indication in the context mean for Paul, means for Paul the law of Moses, or more generally, the Hebrew Scriptures. Genesis 3, verse 16 is the verse most often referred to and is likely what, you, what Paul has in mind. Your desire, speaking to Eve, who stands in the place at that time of all women, your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, this lends support, some support to the fact of uh, references to men and women and referring to them as husbands and wives. But Adam and Eve stood for men and women, not only husbands and wives, reinforcing the idea that by the reference to the law, Paul may have been thinking of a passage from the Pentateuch which was the practice of Jewish synagogue meetings in which women did not take an individual leadership role. Third, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 35. If you notice there, it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. This would be a cultural consideration. Would be a con cultural consideration. And then verse uh, no, and then uh, argument four. In 30, verse 37 of chapter 14, we find that the command of the Lord, if anyone must acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is a commandment of the Lord. This statement is part of Paul's conclusion 
with the whole passage on speaking in tongues and prophesying and, and the disorders in the meeting at Corinth, but it applies to applies to all that he's written in chapter 14, including his words about women. Now, go back a moment to that third argument. Shame might be relative, reckon. It is not shameful in our current American culture for a woman to speak in public. The appeal in, in argument to one uh, to the practice of the churches might not always be applicable. These considerations, however, do not limit the force of Paul's arguments in 2 and 4. If the appeal in argument 2 to the law is indeed Genesis 3.16 and so to the law governing male and female relations since the fall, this argument then has to do with the natural order and is not subject to cultural changes. It's true, Christ may, and that in Christ many things are renewed and therefore are different. But the distinctions between male and female are not canceled so far as life in this world is concerned. Again, part of Paul's problem with the Corinthians is their over-realized eschatology in which they thought of themselves as already living in circumstances of the world to come. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 8. There is no culture of conditioning but the, a command of God, a command of the Lord, which he said in the last verse there, chapter 14. But I want you to notice some things. This is an argument that may be compared and contrasted with arguments as far as the head covering for women is concerned. 1 Corinthians 11, I referred you to a moment ago. Beginning in verse 2 through 16, most Christian women no longer observe the head covering. One might legitimately ask, if we ignore the instructions about women in 1 Corinthians 11, why not do so in 1 Corinthians 14? The answer is that there is a difference in the premises of the reasoning. Both passages are based on ranking of male and female that goes back to the creation, the fall of mankind. Male and female distinctions are affirmed in both passages as having been instituted by God. 11 verse 3, verse 8 and 9, verse 11, verse 12, and then in chapter 14 and verse 34. Some of the ways in which those distinctions are observed are not conditioned by societal norms, but some are. And there, there, there is the hierarchical order. I want you to see some things here. When we're talking about the male, the order of the male and female, and know that it rests on divine rankings given in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, namely God, Christ, man, and then the woman. That's the way that it was created in the very beginning. That's the order and the situation that God gave, and that is not changed by society. And so Paul's argument for the head covering by, by the, uh, of the women as a way of reflection of the glory of her husband, the absence of men, absence on men, as a way of reflecting the glory of the Lord. You see, number one, 
honor or shame comes to the man this way. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And then secondly, as we think about it, the disgrace comes to women in this way. Verses 5 and 6. It is one and the same as having her head shaved. If it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved, she should wear a veil. You see, we need to follow sometimes the cultural standard. What's accepted as representing authority? It's expressed this way in verse 10. For this reason, a woman ought to have authority on her head. Most translations supply the eating, say eating, a symbol or a sign of authority. Then, then number four. What's proper? What's suitable? What's being taught? Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head unveiled? And fifth, what is regarded by human beings as being natural? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's degrading to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? Verse 16, practice of the churches is indicated in verse 16. We have no such custom. Nor do the churches of God. Now think about some of the things that we've talked about. The pattern that God has given for His New Testament church. As Paul spoke by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving one specific theme that God's plan from the very beginning of time. Bow with me for a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you've given us instructions. You've given us the scripture that we may follow. Help us, Father, to realize our most important thing of all. It's not culture, it's not society, it's serving you, being your servant, and being with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.